Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week, the latest podcast series from The Critic magazine. Has scientific development become so specialised and academic roles so minutely research-focused that there is no longer a role for the interdisciplinary polymath who prioritises breadth of knowledge and making connections between different subjects? In this week's Black's History Week, Professor Jeremy Black talks to The Critic's political editor, Graham Stewart, about the idea of the Renaissance man and how he personally developed such breadth in his own wide-ranging career as a historian. Professor Black, uh, we're talking about the, the polymath today, but uh, polymath is sometimes known as the Renaissance man or even the Renaissance woman. But of course, the, the idea doesn't start with the Renaissance. It, you can find any number of medieval scholars or, or, or scholars from ancient antiquity who were very wide ranging in their interests and in their knowledge. Um, let me put it glibly in order to, to tease out your thought. Is it the case that in past times it was a lot easier to be a polymath simply because there was much less to know? Uh, well, I don't know. You're better off asking people like Aristotle or Aquinas there. <laughs> um, I, I think that there was a different idea of knowledge and there was an idea of a completeness or centrality of knowledge. I mean, obviously, for those people who were... Um, deist in the sense they had a strong belief in a in in a in a divinity uh, knowledge lay in the palm of God or the mind of God and human beings could only understand a palimpsest of that but on the other hand by trying to have as broad a notion of knowledge as possible they were in a way seeking to understand God's providential idea and I think that notion was very very strong for after all most of human history and you also have the idea that uh, particularly wise figures you can, and this is not just in the ancient greek world or in the druidical world particularly wise figures were people who were able um, to divine god's purpose and often in an oracular form so as oracles or interpret oracles or interpret divine signs um, so I think those notions of knowledge are very profound. And as you may know, I've written a number of books on historiography, and I would hope listeners might be interested in reading them. But one of the points I make in them is that our modern uh, ideas of, as it were, history or indeed other academic pursuits, as understood in the terms of modern uh, higher education, are, shall we say, there's nothing wrong with them by any means, and they are, they are major achievements of the human uh, intellect, but they are not the only ways in which uh, knowledge has been pursued. And in you could argue that in um, terms of chronological weighting, they've been less important than religious interpretations. And I say that, I mean, you know, I am not a religious person, but I do find one of the great problems with much of the academy, the academic world, is it downplays the, the significance of religious ways of understanding reality. Well, the secularization of the European mind is a huge subject in itself. 
I, I wonder just to go slightly before that period, so I, I'm thinking uh, of the 17th century, and I'm thinking in, in Britain of the period of the foundation of the Royal Society in 1660, when you have extraordinary polymaths like Isaac Newton and Robert Boyle and, and, and Christopher Wren, who you know, we think of as, a, as an architect, a great architect, but he was also an astronomer. Uh, you, they are some of the uh, founding and early members of the Royal Society, which brings these very different disciplines together as a, a forum for debate. This was a period before particularly in the sciences, there was that separation of academic uh, disciplines. Have we lost something in the way in which that separation of disciplines has led to a specialisation and therefore a lack of cross-pollination? I think we've lost quite a lot, but then on the other hand, I'm never sure that it's healthy to focus on the idea of an Elysian past. Um, so... Um, again, just a very brief point, secularization, I would say one of the most significant secularizations at the present moment is that in China over the last hundred years. Um, and on another quick point, um, you know, I was emphasizing the significance of religion. Well, as you know, people like Boyle, Wren and Newton have to be discussed in, in part, uh, in sometimes in large part, in terms of their religious motivation, not least in millenarian interests. So, um, but reverting to your to your general point, um, yes, I think it is hard to have the kind of range that people uh, of intellect might have thought about in the past. Uh, I mean, and that includes my own subject, history. I mean, Edward Gibbon, I think, had a library of about six thousand books, and. You know, that gave him the effective mastery. I mean, he had many languages, but the effective mastery of his subject, uh, as known at the time in European terms. Um, I think it's fair to say that <laughs> you would not find that possible at the present day. And that's why you get these very uh, bitty and often very unsatisfactory uh, ways of interrogating or presenting the past, or you have the alternative, which of course has launched a thousand conferences and a million grant applications, the idea of a few chums and people with shared beliefs getting together and producing collective work, which enables them to understand the interpretation, whereas all too often all they're doing is reinforcing each other's paradigms. Well, I can see why in um, the scientific community, and particularly in innovative technology, that there is a need for specialisation. It's very difficult for a generalist to suddenly uh, um, solve Fermat's last theorem. But um, in, in the humanities, it does strike me there is surely grounds for more breadth than the, the current university environment allows for. What has driven that focus on narrower and narrower specialism in the university? Well, first of all, can I just say, I agree with you in your basic premise. I agree with you that you want to uh, present and understand uh, subjects and, and disciplines in as broad a fashion as possible. You want to look for uh, linkages and conceptual methodological approaches across disciplines. And I think that's true in both research and teaching terms. And I also think that there is a 
deeply flawed nature in which much of our modern education is very, very, very bitty in what the student picks up. I remember in the 2000s in my own department saying it was absurd that a student in the University of Exeter's history department could come out with a degree and never having heard of Thomas Jefferson or done any Chinese history and you know and you know I, I got absolutely nowhere with my attempt to present sort of what I would call uh, an, an approach that was more world historical um so I fully understand uh, your your view, and I agree with it. Um, where has the narrowing come from? Well, I mean, I, I dare say you'd get different answers if you approach different scholars. I mean, so all I can give you is my personal interpretation. Uh, but it's disciplinary over specialization. It's um, the the uh, it's you know a sociologist might well talk about it in terms of job creation, the way in which people create a speciality in order to dominate it and then say this has to be absolutely essential you know you can't teach this subject unless you will have somebody who is an absolute specialist on a or b um so you know there's all sorts of approaches that you could take intellectual or sociological i don't think though that it has led to a whatever you might mean by and we could discuss that better um, better approach in my own subject and you know one of the other subjects I have in well two other subjects I have enormous interest in and have written books about are geography and English literature and I think in the case of English literature an obsession with theory much of it very very uh, narrowly defined and a take um, uh, has I think done enormous harm to that subject and in the case of geography um, I think that the um, the, the the way which and, and in fact the same thing has happened in politics the way in which the subject has spun into different subspecialities um, has has meant that even geography itself as a subject let alone what geography could contribute to other subjects has become far too fragmented and atomistic and without necessarily any capacity to produce a broader account other than in the most vacuous of fashions and you know some of the some of the leading geographers i you know i've published articles about this in my book on geopolitics has gone into this uh, seem to specialize in sort of vacuous remarks many of them of very politicized nature but we'll leave that aside um because it often seems to me they don't actually know very much across the broad range of geography well, I, w I wonder how much of this um, extreme specialisation is down to a focus first on, on um, academics having a PhD, which these days is almost a prerequisite, but, but wasn't a prerequisite um, uh, before, well, certainly before the Second World War. Um, and, uh, and secondly, whether the nature of funding to universities is also driving uh, that that specialisation. On the first particular point, when I arrived at Durham, which was where I first had a permanent job in 1980, the reader in modern history, M. E. James, Mervyn James, was very, very, very proud of the fact that he uh, didn't have a doctorate, and he, sort of England's leading Browdellian, was probably the conceptually most acute member of the department. So yes, I would think that there is something to be said for that, and you know there are. 
you know, really able doctorates out there, and you read them sometimes presented very rapidly in books. And I've also been privileged to be an examiner for many doctorates, and many of them are insightful and interesting. On the other hand, it has to be said that many of them simply take an existing subject and add 10 years to it, or, you know, really redo the footnotes on their supervisor's work. So it partly depends upon the quality of the person doing the doctorate and the extent to which they are able to pursue um, a, as it were, engagement with trying to be conceptually um, and methodologically original. And of course, they need that capacity. Um, as far as the uh, narrowing effect of models taken from the physical and social sciences on the humanities, yes, I would agree with you. But then again, I'm a, you know, I would be regarded as a conservative in all matters. And I think that that is a classic example of that, because many people would say, ah, well, group work with larger funding from external bodies uh, is the future. And obviously, therefore, you have to follow the sort of tightness that that entails. To my own mind, actually, a lot of it is very, very much a matter of proving the obvious. Um, and, you know, you know, I sometimes listen with sort of my, you know, trying to maintain a, a keep a distant view of scepticism when I'm told that such and such a project has received large sums of money from such and such a grant aiding body, whether British or, or European, when it seems to me that that's bloody obvious and everybody knew that anyway. Uh, but, you know, who am I to say? Well, I wonder whether also the increasing size of uh, universities, 50% uh, of young people in, in Britain now going on to higher education. I, I wonder whether that's also been one of the reasons. I mean, simply there are so many academics around now. Um, there's no point them all writing rather general introductions to the work of Jane Austen. So um, otherwise we'll have a surfeit of them. So that there is this encouragement in, in, in theory and uh, rather tangential scholarship. Well, again, that's interesting. I mean, there is, you know, I mean, this is heretical, so let me be heretical. Uh, there is the standard trope, the standard theme in British academic life is that you can't teach well unless you're doing research. Um, and what that therefore means is that even if the research is by any standards inconsequential, it has to be supported and funded and the institution then validates itself on the marks that it achieves accordingly. Now, you may well be sceptical about some of this research. You may well be also be sceptical about the value of it to the students. I couldn't possibly comment because I'd probably be shot repeatedly before the evening is out. But yes, I agree with you. Mm, and I, I just wonder if uh, you know, this distinction between um, academia and, well, let's take history as an example, popular history. So the, you know, there, there have been many popular historians who have been very broad ranging. Um, uh, Christopher Hibbert wrote on many different periods in, in British history. Uh, he'd been to Oxford as a student, but he, he lived a, the life of the historian in private practice. There, there have been other academics who, there have been other historians who have been academics, like Hugh Thomas, um, who was a, a specialist on Spanish history, but also wrote on other subjects, um, uh, uh, most famously perhaps the slave trade. And, and even in, in more recent years, Simon Sharma, a very well-known historian on both sides of the Atlantic, who has has written on uh, on art in 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 the uh, in the 17th and 18th century in the Dutch Republic, but also a whole history of Britain uh, at the French Revolution. Yeah, but these are different kind of people. Hibbert Hibbert 
uh, was somebody, I mean, I'm, you're, you're running together two different categories. Hibbert was an individual who was not part of the academic world. As you say, he may, wrote a number of very interesting books, and he was a, you know, he, he was impressive. That's different to people like Thomas or Sharma, who were people that had academic positions and also with their academic positions wrote uh, for a broader range. Now, if you're asking me, do I think that writing, that non-academics writing popular history can be very good? The answer is yes. And some of the more distinguished historians writing uh, in Britain today, people like Tom Holland, for example, or Andrew Roberts easily fit into that category. There's also a lot of rubbish, but, you know, there are some very good works. And, you know, one of my great fields is military history. And I think and another major field of it, which I'm interested in is cartographic history. And I think it's fair to say that in both those fields, a lot of people that have written very successfully and ably are people who do not have academic positions. That's point one. Point two, if you're saying to me academics who hold those positions, should they also check, try and write for a broader audience? The answer is yes, in my view. And again, some of the people I think are very distinguished. I don't share your high view of Simon Sharma, but I do think, and I didn't actually think Hugh Thomas was that brilliant a historian. But if you look, if you ask me who I think is the leading historian in the world who exemplifies that, I would say Felipe Fernandez Armesto, who's written some marvelous stuff in English. He's obviously he's from the Hispanic background, but he's written some marvelous stuff in in English. And I'll take you to a conversation I had some years ago. I was giving a lecture at the University of North Georgia. And I was talking, I'd been there before to lecture, and I was talking to a rather perceptive Australian scholar about my age. Uh, and we were agreeing that when we were young, um, you would often look at British scholarship as being, if, from, if you think about it from an American perspective, or indeed a global perspective, as being, you know, leading, uh, not always the leading, but leading in many areas of world history, whereas now you would not necessarily have that view. And I think what is ironic um, is that the size of the historical profession has grown greatly in Britain, but um, and there are some very good historians there, and I, you know, would happily l l list many, and there are many others I do not know of. Um, but I would say that I do not think, on the global level, we are necessarily as conceptually or methodologically or historiographically important or engaging so well with many of the areas of the world that are currently um, uh, uh, exciting, uh, exciting, you know, uh, interest. Well, it would be remiss of me not to mention at this moment that uh, Professor Fernandez Amestu is, of course, a, a monthly columnist for the Critic magazine, where 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 he writes on food. So another. A, a case in point of of, uh, of his, uh, which I think uh, he has a medal from the Spanish government for. So not not specifically for the critic, but yes, I mean no, he is he is an example of somebody who is wide ranging, which is what you should want. And if you go back 
to, for example, as you know, I've written on British historiography for the 18th century. And of course, you have figures of that period. I mean, we've mentioned Edward Gibbon. Edward Gibbon was also a member of parliament, for example. Or if you look at 19th century, it was regarded as perfectly reasonable that both uh, Derby and Gladstone, who were prime ministers, should also write scholarly works on the classical period. Um, So I think it's interesting to see that people uh, were wide-ranging. I think that is ne- less common now. Um, maybe they're overly obsessed with um, matters of uh, which are summarized as bureaucracy, but certainly there's an enormous amount of paper pushing around the system. Uh, maybe that is not good for people's intellectual engagement. I mean, to me, it seems that the key thing is the hours spent in front of students trying to engage them, interest them, uh, debate with them, and move the subject forward in that respect. And what I always find uh, rather disagreeable is the number of academics who, as I coyly put it, have lost mission, or let's put it less coyly, they don't bloody well like their students. Mm, Well, is it, I wonder, one of the problems, not just of funding, but of the structure of academic league tables, that there is a, a focus on rewarding research more than there is a focus on rewarding teaching. No, actually, now the research, the focus is on neither of those. If you want a career, Graham, let me tell you, become an expert in equality and diversity and you will shoot up through the system. Um, you know, what is the, the way forward? And if you want prestige, money, uh, not to do any teaching and not for anybody to ask you about anything so vulgar as research, go into university administration and you can go right to the top. Well, uh, that sounds like good advice. I want to focus, though, on, uh, if I may, on, on, on yourself. You are someone who has, uh, is emeritus professor, has been professor uh, and has a long and distinguished career in academia, but has written on a very wide range of topics. So you know, a, a particular focus on the 18th century, but also an ability, uh, an ability to write on many different subjects and in many different countries. It, was this a conscious decision on your part, or was it something that just developed organically as you found your attention uh, roaming? Well, <laughs> um, first of all, there is no master plan, never was, and I don't think either of those things fit me neither was there an a um uh an organ a master plan a sort of conscious decision nor was there an organic development i think serendipity played an enormous role and also uh having to teach a lot which was jolly good for me because i had to think about a lot of topics so very young um i got a job at durham i hadn't even uh, got my doctorate at that stage And I was appointed, although, as you say, my background was in 18th century British history, I was appointed as the early modern Europeanist, which perforce meant uh, that I had to focus on uh, European history, though I also taught British history. And that helped enormously because it forced me from the very start to engage across quite a range. And indeed, insofar as my movement into military history was concerned, it was uh, having taught for over 10 years about the inadequacies of the theory of the military revolution for my European history courses, I thought, well, I'd better get on and write a book about that. And just as the biggest book I wrote 
in the 1980s in terms of length was my 18th century Europe, which I still think is a very good book. And that, again, obviously, in many senses, was a reflection of my um, engagement with the subject. But also, I'm a difficult individual. I don't believe in writing a book unless I've got something new to say. And so in the 18th century Europe, I wanted to argue that we shouldn't be focusing on the Enlightenment and the, pro and the approach to revolution, that this wasn't terribly helpful, that these were not... Uh, for most of the century, uh, the major uh, themes. And if you look at my book, you will see the longest chapter is on faith in the churches, for example. And I would argue that things like Jansenism or Je the fate of the Jesuits were you know, as important as many of the other things that one's interested in. And there was also big sections in there on economic history, etc., etc. So I wrote in the 1980s on quite a broad range of topics. And then in the 1990s, that, to a degree, went out of control. But again, that was serendipitous. So, for example, Durham, which is where I was till uh, 96, um, and which kindly made me a professor in 94, uh, the, the second professor of modern history, uh, Durham had a staff seminar, and I thought, well, I'm a difficult topic of, of just in general interest to everybody. So I decided on historical atlases, because I've always been interested in historical atlases. So I sort of, you know, brought along some of my collection, read a paper. Uh, then I thought, oh, well, this is not bad, actually. People seem to find it interesting. So I turned the paper into an article, which the Historical Journal uh, uh, published, which is a fairly reputable journal. Then I turned the, the article into a synopsis for a book, which I sent to Yale. Yale kindly accepted it. And then I wrote the book, Maps and History. And subsequently, I was to teach a course in Exeter on mapping the past, maps and history, which I thought was very good, which, of course, was jacked, uh, uh, as is the way of all things, for factors outside my control. Um, but the, you know, so this is the kind of serendipitous way that careers uh, in terms of writing proceed. Um, I've got my interests. I like, uh, I like also to try and write books that I hope publishers are going to be um, willing to engage with. Uh, there is a particular point that since I do write a lot, it's necessary for me to think of new angles. Uh, that's very important. Uh, and I would hope um, that um, whilst I wish people to read, you know, the books as it were, there is, you know, has to think about how they support each other. So I don't believe one should just repeat each other. Um, equally, um, I don't want, I, you know, I see them as both independent, but also supporting each other. And that's quite difficult. Um, um, but, you know, I've, I also find it very interesting. And I don't, you know, that's me, as it were. Well, you, you talk about searching for new angles. It reminds me of a, a saying uh, about history, which is to the effect of you, we, we study history to free ourselves from, from the tyranny of contemporary thinking. And I wonder whether that you can see that at work in your own career, a focus on different periods and, and different historical problems has, um, has opened up thoughts and ideas to you on, 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 on different subjects. Well, I've never been one for the tyranny of, of existing ideas. You know, I was a 
you know, a conservative from very early on. And as you will probably be aware, that is a sort of kiss of death in the academic world. And I would probably have gone further in careers terms if I'd, as it were, bent the knee to the uh, dominant orthodoxy. Um, and I think it's also fair to say that writing a lot is not once what's approved of. I mean, I remember what to me was a hilarious conversation. No, this is very English. Uh, 1986, I've got a week leave for some reason, and I'm in Cambridge. And having gone to a seminar, I go to the loo, and there is Derek Beals, the professor of modern history at Cambridge and a Cambridge panjandrum. And he says to me, he said, Dave, he said to me, Jeremy, history is like shaving. You mustn't do too little, but you mustn't do too much. Now, never once did he actually engage with the question of whether your work was any good or for that, you know, but that wasn't the point. In other words, there was a norm and you must behave according to the norm. Uh, interestingly enough, Beals in 19, when I finished, I got a start first as an undergraduate and then I went off to do research at Oxford and Beals, who I didn't really know, summoned me to see him and said, if you leave here, you will never come back. And I thought to myself, well, you know, actually, no, I will follow my own path. And if I make mistakes, I will make my own mistakes. Um, and, you know, it's been very interesting. I found it really fascinating to engage in, with different subjects and to try and think through them. One learns um, from the work of the people that have already contributed onto them and are contributing. And one also, in disagreeing with them, does not imply that one is better or worse, but that there are other ways to look at the past. And I, of course, have, you know, I've written on this. I'm a pluralist. I do not think there is any one interpretation. I am deeply dissatisfied with the attempts at the moment to fit the subject into a sort of normative form, you know, which is in part what people talk about when they talk about decolonizing. Um, and I'm a great believer that one should try and be serendipitous, that if one's got the ability to think in, you know, in, in imaginative, thoughtful ways and to articulate these ideas, one should try and pursue them and encourage one's students to pursue them and hopefully um, encourage readers. Now, I'm aware that sometimes my books are not always easy they're not always full of nice little stories to tell people. But that's because I take the view that the reader is intelligent, that the reader doesn't expect there to be just one account, that if you listen to the news and you know <laughs> that there are differing points of view on whether it's, you know, sort of Brexit or President Trump or God knows what, then why on earth is it that you go to the past, and you, I've made this point about Simon Sharma in the past, Simon Sharma only ever presents one view, his view. That is totally inadequate, totally inadequate. And it's why I don't agree with you in thinking that he is a major scholar. In my view, you ought to introduce readers and listeners to the notion of complexity, that there are different ways of interpreting the past, that, and that there is no one way that is accurate, but what you have to try and explain is why you're encouraging them to have a certain interpretation without relying on argument by assertion.
Well, I, I wonder, as we, as we begin to um, uh, conclude this conversation, I, I wonder whether this is a, a fault of the notion of, of the teledon, the uh, all-seeing, all-knowing narrator striding confidently in front of the camera, uh, in front of a castle, you know, explaining a, a, a clear narrative without any suggestion of, of the complexity. It, it, has that perhaps in some way... Um, reduced the ability of some, certainly some media-focused historians to uh, convey the the full richness of uh, of history and and it, and its it, its problems. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I do think there's no inherent reason why television should not offer complexity. No reason at all. And you know, good current affairs programs do that. I think one of the problems is that too many academics are, as it were, own a view or are owned by a view. So, you know, a particular perception or particular approach and don't want to suggest that their view may be not the only one to approach. So I think that's a significant. So in other words, it's not television itself. It's the sort of person they put on television. Um, Linked to that, I mean, I've done some television history and I've done a lot of radio history. And let me tell you, in radio history, you're much freer to say what you think. In television history, it's much more the director that tries to uh, push it in terms of the image. Now, I'm a great one for departing from the script and then more or less showing, you know, seeing the director down. Um, but I don't. Sh- I think a lot of people are, you know, as it were, they're just uh, sort of subordinate to the image. Uh, I think it's interesting that if you range widely, and I do range widely, and if you do a lot, and I do do a lot, you risk um, people saying the work is flawed. And I know exactly what it's going to say in my obituaries. It would say it could, he could have been an even greater historian if he'd done less. I know that they're going to say that. In my view, the key thing about my work is, first, its, re- its range, which I think is interesting and which enables me to look for comparisons, contrasts, co- cross-disciplinary insights, which I think people who are narrower or do less do not find possible to do. Second of all, the individual books have all gone through the process of being academically peer-reviewed, etc. And they are scholarly works. Some, they are written in different tones and different voices and at different levels of complexity. But they centrally uh, rest on the idea that the past, whilst fascinating, is not something we can know as if in an experiment. And therefore, we have to be wary of present of pretending that there is only one way of looking at it. And I think that is an intellectually very important enterprise. I think it is more important now in an age in which reason is being subordinated to emotion as a way to both understand the present and the past, and I fear to produce a guide to the future. And I would also like to think that people in reading my work or listening to it or listening to me lecture um, are, if they disagree with me, which I hope they often do, uh, because I disagree with myself a lot as well, if they disagree with me, are able by means of taking part in that process better to understand their views and to base their views on an informed reading of the past, which is what I'm trying to communicate. So that is not being a polymath. It is an ambition in terms of intellectual engagement, but it is not pretending to a range of knowledge which I don't have and which I don't think anybody else does. 
Well, Professor Jeremy Black, historian of range, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.